0: One of the joys of life is to confess our allegiance to others. Sports fans wear team jerseys and they attach team flags and bumper stickers to their cars to announce their allegiance to their favorite team. New parents send birth announcements and email pictures to say to everybody, this is our baby. And young couples in love rejoice to confess their allegiance to one another, to anybody who will want to listen. Then one day, perhaps they joyfully stand before an assembly of witnesses to declare their allegiance to one another in the bond of marriage. The joy of devotion is celebrated, it is even heightened, by confessing our allegiance to others. But there's another side to this matter, isn't there? There's a darker side. Confessing one's allegiance can prove dangerous. A young man once told me about a football game that he attended. With his clothing and with his cheering, he boldly announced his loyalty to the visiting team. In a wild finish, the game turned against the home team, and this young man found himself unbelievably pleading for his life before an enraged group of drunken fans who had encircled him and were threatening to take out their anger on him. Sometimes declaring your allegiance can be dangerous, and this was no joking matter. You know, Christian, there may be no more dangerous allegiance to confess in the last two millennia than loyalty to Jesus of Nazareth. Authentic Christianity is the most widely persecuted faith on the planet. We need to be reminded of that because we don't necessarily see that here. It is the most widely persecuted faith on the planet. And here in our culture, it is perhaps the most ridiculed. So, in this assembly, declaring our allegiance to Jesus Christ heightens our joy. We gather on the Lord's Day to sing His praises. We gather on the Lord's Day to say that Jesus is exalted and great. And that heightens our joy in His majesty and in His greatness. But we know that it's not fair to sing or safe to sing that way everywhere. In this fallen world, declaring our allegiance to Jesus can prove a serious test of the genuineness of our faith. A Christian leader recently asked some Chinese Christians, how might we as an American church pray for you, our persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ? What this Chinese leader said shocked the interviewer. He said, one thing that you can do is stop praying that persecution would end. I think that's a legitimate prayer in certain respects, but I think he had a point. Stop praying that persecution will end, because here in China, confessing Christ in a hostile world strengthens our faith. The man continued, and he said, I want you also to know, American Christians, that we as Chinese persecuted believers are praying that persecution will start in America. You know, Christian, that prayer may be answered before we think. And I wonder, how ready are we to confess our loyalty to Jesus Christ should an armed soldier stand over us screaming that we renounce our faith? How ready are we to confess our allegiance to Jesus when simple opportunities present themselves to us on a day-to-day basis? How quick are we to cower? and hide our confession when in the presence of those who reject Christ. These are serious thoughts. And in Luke chapter 22, if you'll make your way there, we find a purifying account that sobers us with a reminder of the utter necessity of our faithful confession of the Lord Jesus in a hostile world. We find in this section of Scripture three primary parties there is first of all the Apostle Peter, there is secondly the confession of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then there is the context, the environment, a hostile world. These three interplaying throughout this latter section of the 22nd chapter of Luke. As we enter into this section, we return to the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. It is the middle of the night. A band of soldiers and civil and religious leaders has followed Judas Iscariot to where he knows he will find Jesus. And there Judas kisses Jesus as a way of friendly greeting to identify Him in the dark to the soldiers. By torchlight they have made their way out of Jerusalem and up that western slope and now they stand before Jesus. And we come to verse 54 in our journey through Luke. Luke chapter 22 and verse 54, we read, "...Then seizing Him, they led Him away and took Him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance." There is obviously much in this verse. Much that's not said. But we see that the hostile band makes its torch-lit journey back down the western slope of the Mount of Olives in the dark shadows of the trees and vegetation, there is one John and one Peter who are following at a distance. They are too afraid to join the band and too heartsick and curious to leave it alone. And so they follow in the shadows on the journey back to Jerusalem. As we see this band in the dark of night making its way back to the city, we consider that back in the city of Jerusalem, the high priest's palace is buzzing with activity. We don't know particularly the hour if it's 3 or 4 in the morning or somewhere in that range, but this palace is hopping. It's a beehive with activity. The reason being that they know that Jesus is about to be delivered, and their goal is to establish charges this night that will be solid enough to convince the Roman authorities to execute Jesus. This is the situation with which they're dealing. The Roman authorities will only deal with a case in the morning. If they don't get it done this Friday morning, they will have to hold Jesus in custody all day Friday, all Friday night, all day on Saturday, the Sabbath because it would violate religious law to prosecute him on the Sabbath. Now you put it together from their angle. Jesus is wildly popular. He's the most popular rabbi in Israel at this time. He has been gathering massive crowds at the temple day after day that protect these leaders from getting to him. You're going to take this teacher and put him in custody for two entire days during a festival. Dangerous proposition. But if we can get him tonight, and we can get him to Pilate in the morning, then we have a chance. And so as this group heads back down that mountain and comes back into the city of Jerusalem through the night, they come to a palace that is ready for Jesus. Their footsteps echo through the now empty streets, their torches casting shadows on the sides of the buildings. Jesus is initially brought, as we read earlier today in the book of John, to the palace of Annas, the father-in-law of the high priest Caiaphas. Some would argue that they lived in the same palace in different wings. That really is not necessary for us to know at this point. Perhaps someday we will. But what Luke deals with is not the visit to Annas, but he looks now at the visit to Caiaphas, the high priest. The palaces of that day, the larger homes, were often two-storied. They were built in a U-shape and looked on on an inner court. At the inside of that U, there is an inner court, and it is there that much of the drama unfolds. There's a substantial gate that led into the courtyard with access strictly monitored by gatekeepers who were supported by Jewish troops. John knows the high priest. His family is known to Caiaphas. And so he is able to gain access into the proceedings as Jesus is brought into the gate. John gets his friend Peter in because of of John's knowledge of uh, of the home there at Caiaphas's palace. We pick up at verse 55 with that background. But when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. They is probably referring to the soldiers who have just arrested Jesus and brought Him back to Caiaphas' house. The cold darkness of that early spring day, they build a sizable fire that is kindled in the midst of the courtyard and Peter saunters up and sits down among the shoulder. Among the soldiers. Undoubtedly, there's some sort of hood that he is wearing to keep warm from the cold of the night and assumes that he will not be recognized. Remember, there weren't street lights that were lining the road up to the Mount of Olives. Uh, Jesus was captured in, the, in pitch darkness and he assumes that these soldiers will not know he is. No one knows who he is, but his heart, let's remember from Matthew 26, is breaking. His mind is confused. And he sits there before that fire, having not slept this night other than the quick bits of sleep that he gathered when he was supposed to be praying back in Gethsemane. He's a man who's deeply discouraged and disillusioned. Verse 56, a servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. You see her looking at his face. And as it's lit up by that firelight, She begins to think, I think I know this man. I've seen him before. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him. A surge of fear courses through Peter's heart, which begins to pound. His mind races as he assesses his predicament. He's here among these soldiers who have just captured Jesus and obviously intend to harm him. And in a split second, he reacts out of self-preserving interest. Verse 57, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. This is a horrifying scene. Now we've had years, many of us, to kind of get used to Peter's denial. I'll tell you, this is one of the most shameful acts in all of Scripture. It's a horrifying scene. This rock-like man who had seen Jesus still the storm and raise the dead and heal the sick. This one who had heard His divine wisdom. This is the man who said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That was his confession at Caesarea. This is the man who confessed his allegiance to Jesus as he journeyed from village to village and town to town. Addressing various villagers in their homes, perhaps in the synagogues, as Jesus sent out the disciples on that mission. This is one, Peter, who went from place to place saying, I confess Jesus Christ is Messiah, the Son of the living God. But here Peter's faith falters, and he says something he could never imagine saying, I know Him not. In fact, that very night, Peter had guaranteed Jesus that he would die for him. Here, he denies even knowing him. Verse 58, and our text does not indicate but Peter gets up from the fire at that point. Apparently, he's adamant enough to put everybody a little bit at ease. But he walks out into one of the porches there off of the courtyard. And at verse 58, we read, a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. The Greek text indicates that he kept on saying this. We wonder sometimes as we compare the four Gospel writers what, in fact, happened this night. There's so many different pieces that sometimes it seems that they're in conflict of course they're not in conflict but they're seeing a lot of different interchanges with different people in different settings and not one of the Gospel authors gives us the whole story. So as the accounts come back they pick up different pieces and what we find is not just that three individuals talk to Peter but in fact that at this time but particularly the next denial that there are numerous individuals who are speaking to him and he is adamantly arguing that he does not know Jesus Christ. Rather than confessing his love for Christ, he insists that he's no disciple of Jesus. Then verse 59, about an hour later, another asserted, Certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. You ever heard somebody from the northeast? You'll know that sometimes they have a real hard time pronouncing their R's. They pock the caw, right? You'd know where they're from. That's not somebody from Minnesota. Or Minnesota. <laughs> That's somebody from the Northeast. They can't pock the car. They go pock the car. They can't say their ours. Well, Peter couldn't use say his guttural Aramaic sounds. And everybody knew where he was from once he got talking, began adamantly insisting that he was not a disciple of Jesus Christ. Everybody said, wait a minute. Your speech, we know where you're from. You're a rural Galilean. What are you doing here? There's a lot of people around this courtyard who think you are with Jesus. You know Him. You've been with Him. Peter now has to repeatedly and adamantly insist that he does not know Jesus. Other Gospel writers instruct us that in fact at this point he begins to take oaths to swear that he has never met Jesus Christ. It's a horrifying scene. He replied, verse 60, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. And just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. And Luke adds this insight. The Lord turned, verse 61, and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. At that very moment, while Peter is arguing with the crowd, Jesus was providentially positioned in the palace somewhere where his eyes locked onto the eyes of Peter. Peter's heart reeled with overwhelming embarrassment. Perhaps it's happened to you, it's a horrible thing, and I hope it doesn't ever happen, but maybe you've talked ill of someone who you didn't think was there, and they walk up right behind you. Multiply that over and over and over again, and that's what goes through the heart of Peter right here. An excruciating self-condemnation overwhelms him. Jesus' quiet look of pain and love shock Peter's soul. The eyes of a man who had never hurt him who was the epitome of love and compassion and courage and decency, a man of unimpeachable holiness, this perfect man, this beautiful human being, Peter swears to have never known him. And with the crowing of the rooster and this gaze of Jesus, Peter's mind is started And he remembers what Jesus had said earlier that night. Satan wants to sift you like wheat. You will deny me three times before the morning. Perhaps Peter also grabbed onto that phrase, but I have prayed for you. And when you are restored, I want you to minister to your brothers and sisters. Peter had been thoroughly sifted. His faith had wavered. He had denied the Son of God and overwhelmed by his sin, yet too ashamed to repent now. Verse 62, He went outside and wept bitterly. As we watch this grown man convulsing with bitter tears, as we consider the gravity of his betrayal and the state of his exhausted soul, we wonder that he does not take his life that night. What more is there to live for? Your rock, your anchor, your Lord and Master. You've denied him. And he's about to die. What more is there to live for? I don't know, it'd be an interesting thought to chase a lot further But I think of a couple things that seem to anchor Peter's soul at this time of tremendous trauma. First, I go back to Luke chapter 5 and verse 8. You remember when Jesus, through the miraculous catch of fish, there in that fishing boat, what does Peter do? He falls down before Jesus and he says, Leave me, because I'm a sinful man. That is Peter's safety net on this night he has recognized that he's a sinner. He knows it. Peter's hope lies in the fact that he's not dealing with untempered pride as was Judas in his betrayal. Secondly, I think Peter's hope this night is perhaps that he clung to Christ's prophecy of a future restoration. I imagine the words ran through his mind now after you are restored. And thirdly, whatever might be the case on these first two points, we do know that the thing that held Peter together was that Jesus was praying. Satan has asked for you. Satan has gone to the Father and he has begged to eat you alive. But I have prayed for you. It is the intercessory prayer of Jesus Christ that holds Peter together that night and nothing else. That's grace. And it's real. And the hostile environment in which Peter's faith falter is exposed in the next brief snapshot that we find here of Christ's experience that cold night Beginning of verse 63, we read that the men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, Prophesy, who hit you? You can hear their laughter. And they said many other insulting things to him. Jesus' night trial before Caiaphas is not referenced here by Luke. But there was an intense period of questioning, complete with the testimony of several false witnesses. The goal, as I mentioned, was to pin on Jesus some crime that would interest the Roman authorities. That would get them to execute Him. The Jews don't have that privilege to execute a criminal. When that trial was concluded, this night trial in Caiaphas' home, the prosecution took a break to await a daytime convocation of the highest court of Israeli leaders. It is during that time that Jesus is in the custody of these soldiers. Put yourself in His spot. Imagine His situation here this night. He has not had any sleep. He's had an exhausting night of teaching at the Passover meal with all of the significance of that meal as He says that His blood is now the new covenant. The new covenant now in His blood which will be shed soon for their redemption. Think of the trauma, the the exhaustion of teaching. Jesus teaches And not only there at that upper room, but He goes down and journeys through the city of Jerusalem and He is teaching, continuing to teach His disciples this last night with intensity, striving to get every point through that He can get through because He's soon going to be gone. And He wants them to know that He is the vine and He wants them to abide in Him and He wants them to consider the Lord's Supper and all of this teaching. That's enough to put a guy to sleep real fast. But Jesus goes from there and He enters into a season of exhausting prayer. So intense that on this cold night, sweat is popping out of the pores in His body. Praying through the night in three specific seasons, agonizing with the thought that His Father would soon turn His back on Him that he would bear the sin of the world. The weight of this trauma is fully upon the head of Jesus Christ. And after all of that, he is forced in this night march back to Jerusalem and now stands before Annas, the most powerful man, some say in contemporary Jewish history. Still say that. He stands before Annas and must defend himself. Then he's run back out, wherever it is, taken back to Caiaphas' house. And through this whole night, facing false witnesses. Imagine the exhaustion that Jesus experiences right now. And after all of that, he's betrayed by Peter. And then finds himself in the hands of soldiers who bloody him and spit on him, other accounts say, and mock him. just as Jesus prophesied. Remember back in chapter 18 and verses 32 and 33, Jesus said, they will beat me, and they will spit on me, and they will mock me. Jesus is not out of control. Jesus is entirely in control of his torture. He knows they will do this to him. The sunrise begins to streak the spring skies that Friday morning as a bloodied and bruised and exhausted Christ is forced to stand now before the ruling body of Israel in the palace of Caiaphas. You imagine his fatigue, you imagine his state, how he looks There he stands before these dignified rulers, the highest court in the land of Israel. And they want here a quick, formal review of the evidence against him so that they can whisk him off to the Roman authorities for crucifixion. And you know what? They really don't have a whole lot yet. But Jesus will help them out. At daybreak, verse 66, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Christ, they said, tell us. It's a very interesting phrase. Let me stop there for a moment. We need to consider that. If you're the Christ, then tell us. The Jewish authorities believe this is their best angle on Jesus. They tried this thing of saying that he was going to destroy Herod's temple. I don't know if this is how they thought, but if they had any sense at all, they might have started thinking through that and saying, you know what, the Roman authorities are going to laugh us right out of court and wonder about our own sanity for believing the guy. Some of the stones in that building were they are just unbelievably massive. Forty and sixty feet in length, single stones. This guy's going to destroy the temple, really. They bury that one. But the one that they think will stick, is he thinks he's Messiah. That might stick because every Jew knows that Messiah is going to reestablish David's throne in Jerusalem. And that's going to cramp Rome's style a little bit. In fact, Messiah is supposed to come back and clean out all of the foreign influence and the domination of any foreign power. If we can get Jesus to admit he's Messiah, that's going to bother Rome. He's a king, and he has designs on a throne in Jerusalem. Are you the Christ? Jesus answered, verse 67, If I tell you, you will not believe me, and if I asked you, you would not answer which is a way of saying something like, why should I answer a question on which you've already made up your mind and which no amount of explanation would convince you is true? Further, why should I respond to you when you refuse to respond to me? Remember earlier that week, he had asked them at the temple, does John's authority come from heaven or does it not? And they wouldn't answer it. He knows he is up against a court that will do nothing to be legitimate and honest. They want him dead, and that's all they want. Jesus doesn't even answer them, essentially, here. He brings out and exposes their wickedness. But they're on to the real issue, aren't they? It's Jesus' true identity. Who is Jesus? Although the authorities have been able to do nothing to convict Him yet, Jesus Himself will now give them all that they're looking for. It is again a tremendous evidence of the fact that Jesus is in control. They're striving so hard to hang Him, and they're not really connecting, but now Jesus will put it all to rest, and it will be His confession alone that hangs Him. Verse 69, He gives them much more than they're asking for. He says, But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. What Jesus means is something like this. Am I Messiah? Not only am I Messiah, whom they conceived as a purely human figure, it would appear. He says, I will sit at God's right hand. Now there's a lot here. Psalm 110 and verse 1, "...the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand." No Jew is capable of hearing that phrase, I will sit at the right hand of the Most High, without putting that together with Psalm 110 and verse 1. Along with that, Luke does not really deal with this issue quite as pointedly here, but the Son of Man idea comes from Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13. Let's turn back there. And consider what Jesus means when he uses Son of Man. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13. We're thinking in the context here of how these Jewish authorities will read what Jesus has said. I will be seated at the right hand of God. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13. Daniel, in his vision at night, looks, Daniel 7 13, and there before me, he says, was one like a Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, that is the God, the Father, and was led into His presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. What do the Jews do with this? Here is one who is distinct from the Ancient of Days, yet who has divine powers. He is given authority over all peoples and all nations in every language and they worship Him. And the Ancient of Days does not rebuke Him, He encourages Him and brings Him into His presence and gives Him an everlasting dominion that will never pass away and never be destroyed. Jesus looks at his enemies in this moment. And if he has any inkling of being delivered, here's the place where he can do it. They can't pin anything on him. But he looks in their eyes and says, not only am I Messiah, I am the Son of Man. I am the Son of God. You gentlemen have certainly heard of the Son of Man, haven't you? Who enters the presence of the Lord and reigns as his vice-regent with him, I am that man. You gentlemen think you sit here in judgment over me, but I tell you I will soon sit at the Father's right hand and I will rule as the judge of the universe. From now on, says Jesus. From now on. Remember his prophecy I will die and I will rise again on the third day. From now on. Upon his resurrection, Jesus will sit in his heavenly throne dispersing, dispensing, saving grace, pouring out the Holy Spirit on His people and waiting until the time the Father makes His enemies a footstool for His feet. Then He will come as the Ancient of Days on the clouds of heaven to return to Jerusalem to set up again David's throne. There, now, in their hour. This is their hour. This is the hour of darkness, verse 53. But from now on, says Jesus, you get your job done here, and I am going to reign in judgment on you. It was C.S. Lewis, I think, who said that Jesus is either a liar or a lunatic. You can't even be a liar like this. The only way such a lie is even possible is that you are a lunatic. Jesus looks them right in the eye and says, I am that man. And if he is not a raving lunatic, then he is who he said he was. He's the Lord of heaven and earth, and he has an appointment to sit next to his Father and to begin his reign in a few short hours. Had those men had hold of their reason, had they for a moment been able to perceive what had just been said, they would have died, every last one of them, of a heart attack on the spot. That they are driven by dark forces this night. Fully culpable, but they are driven by dark forces. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords that stands before them bloodied and beaten and in their hands. Verse 70, how do they respond? They all asked, are you then the Son of God? He replied, you are right in saying, I am. confession they wanted, the confession they sought through false witnesses, Jesus hands to them. His own words and only his words condemn him. Jesus offers the confession that Peter could not offer. Though Peter can deny the truth of God, Jesus cannot do so, and he will not do so. He confesses to the truth at the cost of his life. Remember him weeping in the garden. And pleading that the cup could be removed. Jesus is here painstakingly, purposefully drinking that cup to the bottom. He has accepted his Father's will. And he has given them the line they need. They then said, why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from, our, from his own lips. Can the false witnesses? We don't need them. Let's go straight to Pilate now. He deserves to die. Jesus claims not only that he is Messiah, not only an earthly king come to reestablish David's throne, Jesus claims to be God's vice-regent. What more do we need? We wanted him to be the king, claimed to be the king of the Jews. He's claimed to be the king of the universe. Luke does not record that they rend their clothes as a sign of blasphemy and they announce that Jesus is worthy of death. The pronouncement is made. It is an intense scene with far-reaching implications. And I think as we filter this scene, we must note that the major issue here is who is Jesus? All of the Gospel writers spend much time developing this trial because it is this trial that establishes finally who He is. He is the Son of Man. He is the Son of God. What is your confession? We have seen Peter stumble in his confession. We have seen Jesus stand against the forces of darkness and confess that He is the Son of God. Are you willing and able to confess that Jesus Christ is the ruler of heaven and earth? Not as some theory, not as some spirit, not as some mystery or some wish, but that Jesus Christ today rules from heaven's throne. Are you capable of making that confession? Could you stand before this assembly and say, I believe that. Are you willing to and able to confess that He is the ruler of heaven and earth, the only name by which we must be saved, that Jesus is your Master and Lord, that He is your Savior? Is that your confession of who Jesus is? From Peter, we are reminded how weak we are and which one of us would want to stand up and say, I will make that confession in any circumstance, at any time, to any people, what you have to first ask is, do you want to? And secondly, we throw ourselves upon the mercy of God, because we can certainly identify with Peter, can't we? With the temptation to deny the truth in order to protect our reputation or our well-being how small and weak we are. We who sometimes find it a self-conscious thing simply to bow our head in prayer in public. We who have opportunities to say I belong to Jesus Christ and pass them up in fear. Who are we to say that we could stand and confess Christ in any circumstance? We would never say what Peter said. We learn through Him and I thank God for Peter." Like I said, we get used to Peter denying Jesus. Peter doesn't get used to that. His account is here as the most shameful account perhaps in Christian history. And it stands recorded that we might learn. Never will we God's people say, you can count on me in any circumstance, we know we're weak. But what it comes down to, as you hear this account, as you consider this weakness of heart, what it comes down to is to consider, is Jesus who He said He is? Do you believe that confession? Do you stand on that confession? And do you rely upon the power of the Spirit of God that Jesus dispenses from His throne in authority upon His people so that weak people like Peter can stand up in front of hostile crowds in this same city in a short time and proclaim, He is Lord. And He goes to prison And in the end, this man dies for Christ. That's where it comes from. It's not something within. It's not self-reliance. It's the dispensing of the Spirit of God upon His people from this ruling Jesus who allows us to confess His name in a hostile world. It is this reason, it is this presence of the Spirit of God poured out by the ruling Christ. This is why people, as we are here in this auditorium, are now in prison for Jesus Christ. And their faith doesn't cave in. They don't renounce the faith because the Spirit's presence is there. This is how someone with rational mind and fervent faith and the grace of Christ can look you in the eye and say, will you please quit praying for our persecution to be ended? because that's a person who knows that faith in Jesus Christ is more important than life. And that is a person who learned Peter's lesson. You rely upon your own strength, you rely upon your own goodness, and you're gonna fall flat on your face and do things of which you are unbelievably ashamed but you rely upon the witnessing, sustaining power of the Spirit of God and you can choose death over life. If it means that you have the opportunity to confess Jesus Christ is the Lord. Not you my persecutor, not you my guard, not you my authority, civil authority who is making my life difficult and pressing me in persecution. You're not the Lord. He's the Lord. And over and over we hear accounts that are coming from other parts of this world where people are, in fact, giving their life because their confession is solid. What will ours be? See, the bedrock's not for you to reach down inside and try to find out what's in there. And imagine yourself before a guard who's got a gun pointed at your head and says, Renounce Christ. None of us has that within. The answer is to stand on the bedrock of what Jesus said about himself. His self-revelation that he is the sovereign Lord of the universe. And as you stand holding his hand and standing on that confession, that's your bedrock. That's your strength. It is to look not within, but to look to Christ who rules. And it is then to look to the future, as Philippians 2 says, at that day when we will all bow and confess that Jesus is Lord. If that day is fixed in our mind, and that reality of heaven's rule is fixed in our hearts, from that strength, and the presence of the Spirit of God, we will, by God's grace, have the mercy to confess Jesus in any circumstance. Without it, we're like Peter in that courtyard. I don't want to be in that courtyard like Peter. I want to be with those who have confessed Jesus Christ at all cost. They are those who follow their master because that's just what he did. Jesus doesn't ask us to confess his name without having done it himself and without having done it at the cost of his life. How can we give him anything less? Because he laid down his life for us. To bear the penalty of our sin and to bring us into glory, not as those who crucified Him and mocked Him and beat Him, but as those who confess that He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And on that day, confessing Jesus Christ will not be dangerous anymore on that day, confessing Jesus Christ will heighten our joy beyond imagination. May God bring that day. Let's bow for prayer. We give thanks to you, Father, for this reminder. And we pray that you will help us to take it to heart to be faithful to you as we have opportunity to confess the name of Jesus Christ. Our faith is weak, it's small. We don't rely on ourselves, but I pray that you will supply the Spirit's power for us to confess reality in a world that's bent against it. We pray for our brothers and sisters in China, in Vietnam, in North Korea, in Iran, in Pakistan, in the Sudan. So many places, Father, where their lives are miserable because of the pressures from without. But I pray that they will know the feast of heart that looks with hope to the vindication of Jesus Christ. To the day when He will come on the clouds, and will establish what is right and good and true. And will reign from Jerusalem. May our hopes be fixed there. And may you sustain us in this much more easy setting and environment. And in some respects, Lord, we have our own battles with the idols of our culture. But I pray that you will help your people to confess Christ. May we go from here and speak the truth of God's Word winsomely and effectively. And I pray that you'll hold us up. Should persecution come intensely to this land, I pray, Lord, that your people will stand. And I pray that you will be building us to be ready for that day. And I ask, Father, for those who do not know Christ as Savior, may they tremble before Him. May they tremble with the choice to make Him out as an absolute lunatic. Or to receive Him for who He said He was. If there are any among us that know not Christ in this saving way, I pray that you will bring them to a place of submission before His authority so that they will recognize that he opens his arms in love and compassion and self-sacrifice to pay the penalty of their sin, to defeat death in their place, rising from the dead to give resurrection life. Bring any who know you not as Savior to that conviction today, I pray. Open their eyes to see it. And may we all, with great joy then, come before the throne of God, purified and robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.